Drinks and a show. I'm Cassie, and this is a musical podcast where I spoil musicals, and it definitely makes you all want to see the musical, and definitely isn't just an excuse for me to talk about musicals. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter to keep up to date with what's going on. Just search Drink Show Pod. I also have created a Spotify playlist, which I put all my favorite songs from the episodes that I've done and chuck them all into one place. You can check the link in the pod show notes or you can check out the link tree that will be on the Instagram and Twitter that will take you directly to it. Today's episode is a True Tunes episode where I talk about a musical and then go into the true story that is behind it. And today is The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Some may know from the movie that has Dolly and Bert, and in case you didn't know, yes, it was a musical first, and before that was a true story. Let me get into the background of the musical first. It was written by Larry L. King and Peter Masterson. Now, Larry was the journalist who originally wrote an article about the chicken ranch when he had visited the town of LaGrange for Playboy. So Peter, who had seen the article, called Larry up and got him to co-write this musical. The music and lyrics in the show were all done by Carol Hall, which all the songs have a country feel, And as someone who really enjoys country music, I fucking love it all. It was on Broadway in 1978 to 1982. So with the 1,584 performances, can you believe it makes it the 51st longest running Broadway show? It also came to Sydney in 1980. So just two years after it debuted on Broadway, like how lucky was Sydney back then? And then also was on the West End in 1981. The performance I was lucky enough to be able to watch was the Benefit Concert performance that was recorded in 2006 and I cannot stress enough how much I'm obsessed with these songs. You got country mixed in with musical theatre. It's like my dream and poor Alexi is going to have to put up with me being obsessed with these songs for like the next 6 to 12 months and being on repeat. So what happens in the musical? Let's get into that part. We start off being introduced into the setting and a little history of the whorehouse through the song 20 Fans. We're based in the 70s in the fictional town of Gilbert, which is located in the state of Texas in the country of the United States of America. The Chicken Ranch is a brothel that has been around for over 100 years, owned by Miss Mona. And where it got its name from? Well, at one point they did accept chicken as a payment for the services they offered. And the connections that they did have coming in wasn't just your everyday farmer who just had chickens to give away. It's also sports people, educated people, politicians, and some rumors that organized crime was also running their business out of there. But luckily, it's fine because Mona also has a connection with the sheriff, Ed Earl Dodd. We do get introduced to two gals, one called Shy and one called Amber, who are wanting to work at the chicken ranch. And Shy lives up to her name and is literally very shy. And we have Amber, who looks like she would work very well at this whorehouse. So Mona does hire these girls because she can use the extra and I'll have to say pun intended here, hands to help out. But first of all, you've got to give Shy a makeover 
and she does this on her first shift. Shy does really well and they're like, cool, great, got ourselves a new girl. We also have Amber who has changed her name to Angel to be a bit more fitting for her occupation. We then learn about the Watchdogs and that is a snitch's favorite show. It is hosted by Melvin P. Thorpe who does exposés on this show. He is revealing that, can you believe it, Texas has a whorehouse in it. He mentions what goes on in there. You know, you get your naked ladies, you got people doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing and the sheriff ain't closing it down. So this is Melvin bringing the attention to the people and he said he will continue to fight this until this corruption is over and the place is shut down completely. So that's just like a little crossover that we do, a little nice fun song, the Watchdogs theme. We then cut to Angel, so previously was Amber, who we know has a son and she makes a call back home and her mum is looking after the son for her and she's really hoping that she can get Christmas off. Miss Monet overhears this and is a bit moved and says to her, how about we just say over Christmas your period came? So that's letting us see how nice Miss Mona is to her girl. She's not a hard ass, treats them well. There's a reason why they stay there. Eventually, Melvin does actually show up in town and he makes a huge fuss at the courthouse and is confronted by the sheriff. And the sheriff makes a huge scene. He cusses and he shoots his gun. And let's just say Melvin wasn't there on his own. He had a camera, he was recording everything that was going on. Did the sheriff care? Clearly not. We also meet Dotsy May, who is there, I guess. (laughs) She's a gal who's pretty plain. She works at the diner and she's a bit jealous that Mona's getting all this attention and she sings a song called Dotsy May and it's about her being plain. I don't really understand the point of Dotsy May. Don't know if she's a real person. But yeah, that song is in there, people. There is an upcoming event, which is a huge thing that happens every year. You have the Texas Aggies v. Longhorn football game party. So it's your classic college football versing each other. The American towns go crazy. And if you're American... That's, sorry, what the stereotype is for you guys and your football. It is tradition that the alumni associates of each school treats the winners to a night out at the chicken ranch. The Aggies win and we have a dance number, which was also performed at the 1979 Tony Awards. And it's funny that they chose this number to be the one that they performed because it had to be televised. Well, it didn't have to be televised, but because it was televised, It was censored a whole bunch. And so while they're singing, you've just got parts being kicked out. The men are in like the change room after the footy game. So they're getting change. You give yourself some half naked men. Kind of funny. And then they do probably one of my favorite things to watch in a musical. And that's them going off in a dance break. And not just any dancing, you got tap dancing in cowboy boots and I just fucking love it. You can go check that out. It's just on YouTube. Just literally search the Aggie song, I think it's called. But this song 
itself is about them all being excited that they're going to be heading to the chicken ranch. We see at the ranch that the state senator is there and he shows up. He gives Mona some money. She goes, make sure all the boys act all calm. We've already got some bad attention here. We don't want to be attracting any more, especially with this Melvin character in town. And he goes, don't worry about him. You got nothing to worry about. And she's like, thank you. That makes me feel better. As long as you don't say we should be shut down publicly, then things should be all good. And he goes, ha ha, sure will be. And just goes off with one of the gals. We have the sheriff come in and him and Mona are talking and they're worried about Melvin and the sheriff reminisces about how the place used to be like when Mona actually wasn't the head bitch in charge that she was also another worker. She goes, you always get so nostalgic. Let's just go into the kitchen, have some coffee and chill out there. And as they go into the coffee and the coffee, As they go into the kitchen, boom, we get flashes of lights. Cameras are going. They're taking photos of people who are in the chicken ranch. You've got the footy players who are in there with women. You've got that senator who's also being caught down there. And Miss Mona also getting pictured in a place of business. Nothing scandalous, but the place of business is a scandal. And that's how Act 1 ends. What's... Weird, weird, I don't know, there might be more shows that are like this, but Act 1 goes for like, I don't know, like an hour and a half. And then I feel like Act 2 is only like half an hour, maybe 40 minutes if we want to round it up a bit. So you're watching this and you're like, well, like, is this just going to be a one-act musical? Is that what's going on? They're like, nope, we're ending here. You're like, but so much has happened already. Something to take note if you ever go to see a performance, make sure you go to the toilet before Act 1, definitely clean out the bladders, guys. You're going to be waiting a while until you can go. Act 2 begins, and we see that pictures of the senator was released of him being at the chicken ranch, and he's being asked questions about it. He goes, Ugh, I don't know, fellas. Just showed up there. I didn't know what was going on. Ha, ha, ha. The governor steps in, and the journalists are asking him questions, and we have the song Sidestep where he is sidestepping all the questions, where they're asking him questions, he's addressing that person who's asking those, but not answering the questions directly. Melvin is there, of course, you know, he's obsessed with trying to get this place shut down. He says, shut it down, it's tied to organized crime. This scares people, hearing that there is organized crime coming out of there, you know, you can be breaking the law by paying a woman to bang, but god damn you better not money launder, uh-uh, that's where we draw the line. And this causes people to actually protest to the ranch. And the state itself does have legislation against prostitution, but with it all being so public due to Melvin, the ranch does have to get shut down. So all the gals who work there are waiting for the bus from Amarillo And we have the song Hard Candy Christmas, which what I learned meant that back in those days and for my older listeners, I can say back in those days because the 70s were 50 years ago. So sorry if that's a harsh reality, 
But back then, hard candy was all people could afford to give their kids for Christmas. So it's a hard candy Christmas. It's all they can afford. It's not going to be one where they're making it rain. The show ends after Mona has said goodbye to everyone and she's all alone on the bus to Amarillo. And we have the finale. Not really a happy ending, but a realistic ending of what happens. Uh, Spoilers. But that's what this whole show is so and it happened 50 years ago so I guess not really spoilers but also that's literally how quick act two is like I said compared to act one over and done with and I cannot be more clear drinkinators listen to these songs especially if you do already like country music I think you're gonna froth them it'll be great If you don't like country music at all, I'm not sure how much you will like it, but I still want you to listen to it because just give it a go. What's the worst that could happen? You could find out it's actually great. Come on. Okay, so now the true story, which I got from bits and pieces everywhere, but mainly from Larry's original article that was in Playboy. One of the things I'll just get out of the way, it was called the chicken ranch because people did actually want to pay with chickens previously instead of cash. And it's actually in Lagrange, Lagrange. Don't know how I'm meant to say in Australia, but in America, Lagrange, Lagrange. That's probably right. So there is a book which is written by Jan Hudson titled The Chicken Ranch, The True Story of the Best Little Whorehouse in Texas who said that she'd worked there and when the place was first run in the 1800s, it was by Mrs. Swine, who was this really ugly, hideous widow who decided to open up this business. And there was another author who had left a bad review on Jan Hudson's book to say uh, a lot of this sounds like fake news. It's not backed up by any sources it was the reason I went and did a research and did my own book. And how they address this Mrs. Swine. Oh, did she exist, didn't she? They said they went and did their own research and there's just no historical proof that Mrs. Swine ever existed. But they did admit that there was also evidence that she didn't exist. But uh, you meant to prove a negative? I don't believe so. So... This other author, Jame Blaschke, sorry, Jame, if you're listening and I'm pronouncing the name wrong, I apologize. His own book was titled Inside the Texas Chicken Ranch, the definitive account of the best little whorehouse. So those are books that you can go check out. I believe all of them are on Amazon if you go to Kindle or anything like that to just go search for that. So back onto the true story. The place before it was shut down in the 70s was run by Miss Edna and she did have connections to the sheriff TJ Flurney and the alumni treating the winning team to a night at the chicken ranch was true and was actually a Thanksgiving tradition and also being visited by politicians that part pretty true as well which not much has changed can tell you that much with what's going on in politics. Am I right there on my politics musical fans? You get it. 
So the place had been flourishing for a while until Marvin Zindler came onto the scene. So he used to be a deputy sheriff and was fired for like being obsessed with his job and controversial, which is funny to read because they're like, oh, the law is the law. He was just obsessed with doing stuff. So my example of him being obsessed with the law is is he'd arrest his own mother for jaywalking. Not actually something that he did, but that's a vibe that I would get from him. He goes, it's the law, ma'am. And she's like, I'm your mother. Please stop. Well, I don't know. That accent. Ignore I did that accent. And we'll just ignore that. Okay. On to the next thing. After he was fired, he began working at a TV station. KTRK TV, I think it was called. And this is where he starts making a name for himself. If you can't get paid to be a snitch in the police force, why not just make yourself public? He kept telling people that there is a whorehouse in LaGrange and people like, okay, like I didn't know about it. Thanks for letting me know, but it didn't affect people. Like unless it was your partner that was going there and they didn't tell you they were going there, I could get why you'd be mad about finding that out. But this disinterest did not stop Marvin from being persistent because he was not happy about the organized crime that went on there. And it was like he was really trying to push it across like, no, it's the organized crime part, which I don't like. I'm not a prude. Don't try and call me that. But can't really say much. Marvin's dead. Spoilers once again. Um, (laughs) So I'm not going to speak ill of the dead. Not that I was about to say anything ill of him anyway. He did approach the sheriff and ask him about the chicken ranch. And he was filming and the sheriff did not give an F that the camera was on. The camera was rolling and he was cussing the hell out of Marvin. Which, let's just say, I don't think Marvin has a good history with sheriffs. After getting fired by his last one, now this new one. Mate, probably just not going to like you. Marvin did ask the state attorney general, John Hill, and governor, Dolph Briscoe, how come y'all have failed to close the LaGrange sin shop down? And that's straight, actually, from Larry's article, guys. And y'all is spelled Y-A-W-L. And these two, the state attorney general and the governor, like, what? A whorehouse in Texas, why I never ever would have thought. But once again, the organized crime part, that's that's where people freak out about. Puts more pressure on the governor and he makes a statement and was like, yes, I do not like this happening. And boy, the local law enforcement better do something about it. The sheriff came out and was like, all right. I'm local law enforcement, make a call, do something about it. And after this news had eventually gained national attention, journalists from around the country decided to make their way to Lagrange to go check out the chicken ranch. By the time all these journalists got to it, place was closed, locked up, and people have no idea where Miss Edna and her girls had gone. Well, that's what the article that Larry King wrote said that happened. But 
If you go on the Wikipedia page of Chicken Ranch, it tells you a bit more how it was originally closed down in November 1972 for a little bit and then reopened in 1973. And then that's when Marvin Zindler began his investigation and his propaganda of saying how crap it is. And he told everyone that it was an anonymous tip. Someone said, hey, totes go into it. The governor, Dolph Briscoe, did end up closing the original operation that got it shut down the year before, but it they reopened the operation and Marvin ended up coming out saying in 2005 that it wasn't an anonymous tip. He actually, well, I don't know if people use the word anonymous tip in a way that they're telling everyone, no, it's anonymous, I can't tell you, or it's an anonymous tip, I don't know who gave it to me. But the tip was actually a phone call from the Attorney General's office, John Hill. And apparently, John Hill asked the chief of his organized crime division, Tim James, to get Marvin involved to close the chicken ranch. I do want to say that after a very brief investigation... There was no evidence found that it was linked to organized crime. However, once again, prostitution was still illegal in Texas. Briscoe and Hill did order for it to be closed. So the sheriff gave Edna a call and said, sorry, bestie, you're no longer allowed to operate down there. And then that's when a sign was put up that blamed Marvin for the whole thing, which TBF was all his fault. But back into what Larry said after this closure, the sheriff, so once again, not a huge fan of this place getting closed down at all. He came out and said half of what was reported was the lies. The place was just girls trying to make a living, didn't hurt anybody. And like I said, in the investigation, did say there was no actual organized crime related to this place. The sheriff did even go to Austin to meet with the governor and he had a petition that was opposing the closure that had over 3,000 signatures, which I don't know if that was the whole town of Lagrange. Probably not. (laughs) But the governor just refused to meet with him. It's like, I've done my job as our governor. The governor just refused to meet with him completely, which I, this is where it's got to be clear that the sheriff is a bit too obsessed with this place getting closed down. Like Miss Edna should be advocating for a business to continue. Not, not the sheriff. So another book that was written regarding all this was based on Marvin's point of view. And it was also written by him and Gary Taylor. And they sat on it for years. And it wasn't until Marvin had passed away in 2007 that Gary decided to eventually just publish this book. And this book is called I, the People, How Marvin Zindler Busted the Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. All these books, guys, they have such long bloody titles. Nothing that rolls off the tongue. Like already the best little whorehouse in Texas is like a whole breath just to say. But the books, you're adding these extra words to it. How are you meant to recommend that to a friend? which I wouldn't for this Marvin one. It's from what I could see, it was very small. It's only like a hundred pages, 
but reviews said was very, very biased that made Marvin out to be the hero. This He was doing the right thing, guys. Don't listen to his slander against him. Listen to the slander he's given other people. So those three books, uh, the reading, if you all want to do, maybe someone else can go out and read them and let me know what you think. Let me know what I missed. On to the 1979 Tony Awards, which let's just say, unfortunately for the best little whorehouse in Texas, that it was nominated in the same year as Sweeney Todd, which took home most of the awards. However, Henderson Forsyth, who played the sheriff, and Carlin Glynn, who played Mona, both won for their best performance by a featured actor in a musical. So... Good on them. Unfortunately, I would have liked for any of the music to win because of how much I loved it. But Carol Hall, the girl who did the music and lyrics, did win a Drama Desk Award. So good on you, Carol. Totes deserved it. Huge fan. Some of you may be listening to this and now you know about the musical, now you know about the true story. But originally, you only ever even knew about the movie. So the movie came out in 1982. It's the same name, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, and it featured Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds. And with most musical movie adaptions, songs were cut and songs were added. And Dolly Parton, being the big name she was, it seems like they just let her do whatever the heck she wanted. She changed the orchestration so that it could feature more in a Dolly kind of way. And she also included the song, I Will Always Love You, which she had already released as a Dolly Parton song years earlier. But get your coins, girl. I get it. Slide that right on in there into this musical movie. It was also a very high grossing movie. Its opening weekend made $11 million, which was fucking huge at the time. And probably even now making, I don't know, now I personally would like to make $11 million in a weekend. If anyone's offering sponsors, (laughs) I don't know. But in total, it made $69 million domestically, so in the USA, with it only having a budget of $35 million. So you're giving all your stars, paying them all the money and taking some home with you. So I did have written down here that it was the fourth highest grossing live action musical from the 1980s and the top grossing one of 1982. But I literally cannot remember where I pulled that fact from. So I've had to research it and I'm on a a website called The Numbers Box Office Records and of all time musicals, it is actually number 40 of the highest all-time worldwide box office musical movies. Number one's being Frozen, for those wondering. So not pretty bad. I'm assuming it's taking an inflation. Have a look at the numbers. Maybe not. Maybe not taking an inflation. But that's a stat I've got there for you, which seems to be more accurate because I have no memory of where the fuck I got that from. But it's not just about the money, guys. It's about recognition. There was an Oscar nomination for Charles Durning, who played the governor, who unfortunately lost to Louis Gossett Jr. from An Officer and a Gentleman. The movie itself was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Comedy or Musical and lost that one to Tootsie, which is also 
recently been made into a musical, but I've heard it's actually pretty problematic. That's not where this ends, though, guys. This episode is about to end, but there is a sequel that was also created called The Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public. It was performed in 1994. It's not a movie. It was a musical. They were able to get in the same writers, Larry and Peter, and Carol came back to do all the songs. So maybe that's an episode for another day for what the heck goes on to the sequel to this. But or you could just look into it yourself. Apparently the songs are really good. Everything I've seen on the internet about this sequel, people really liked it and wish that it was done more often. Thanks for listening, guys. I hope you all enjoyed this True Tunes. Don't forget to subscribe for new episodes out on Tuesdays and to keep up with what's going on. Follow the show at Drink Show Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And check out that Spotify playlist. I think it's about to have a few songs added to it. All links to these will be in the show notes. And I'll add those books ones for you. Because like I said, mouthful of words. I'll just chuck them in there for you. So you can just read, copy and paste if you want to read them. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye.